Well, hello, my name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to just speak quickly about our special offerings. Over the last few years, we've done two special offerings a year, one around March, sort of time, one around November. You probably remember, if you were around last November, it was a bit unconventional. It was a little bit different. We pressed pause on our special offering because up until that point, we'd said every time we take up a special offering, half of it will go towards the church housing fund and then um, we will sort of, we'll, we'll seek God as to where the other half should go. And we'd operated that way. And we'd made some decisions last time. And then as it got closer, just felt, actually, no, this isn't the right thing to be given to. So we just pressed pause and thought, let's just see what God's doing. And, and since then, had some time to reflect and just, I guess, be before God and have some conversation. And so we're, we're delighted to announce that from this point forward, so our next special offering will be on our 10th birthday in two weeks' time. Woo! Uh, from this time forward, the, uh, the, for the foreseeable future, um, the special offering will continue to be 50% for the housing fund. Now is not the time to go into detail, but suffice to say, we're really gaining some traction now. Okay? This is not just going into a, a, a hole, what will ever come of it. We're in some very, very constructive and meaningful conversations, uh, which means that our investment into this will... We, we, are, we are confident we'll be, begin to yield some concrete return in the not-too-distant future. So please continue to stand with us in faith here. We're not there yet, but we're getting somewhere really good. We also feel very peaceful and full of faith that going forward from here on for the foreseeable future, the other 50% of the special offering will go towards church planting of some kind. Okay, So it'll either be abroad with the guys that we are supporting over um, in the Middle East or in Germany, Latvia, Poland, the guys that have come out from here to plant that are still very much a part of us in heart that we are partnering with, that we will invest in some way in them, or into the plants we're going to be doing in London, hallelujah, over the next few years, we'll be investing in them, um, and it could be that every now and then, you know, there's a different relational mission plant that God particularly puts on our heart, and we'll bring that before you and invest in that. Um, but I guess, I think, I think suffice to say that we're very, very peaceful with this. We feel, yeah, we can really invest here, it ties in with our vision, but it gives us the flexibility each time a special offering comes along to say, God, specifically where this time. Um, and we haven't had uh, m- uh, uh, any specific discussions that have come to a concrete conclusion for two weeks' time, but I think I can probably speak for all of us in saying that we want to continue to invest in Hazer and Lena at this very, very critical initial stage of what they are doing. Hazer's yet to find a job, and um, things are just proving to operate very, very differently where they are from over here. And um, it's essential that we continue to stand with them in a very concrete way financially. And then there will be other things that we, that we bring to you so that we can, we can invest in a number of plants through our offering. So does that make sense? Yeah. All clear on that? Wonderful. Uh, second bit of good news is that we have this, this year is not our church holiday year. Every other year we do a church holiday. This year is not our church holiday year. But we thought, wouldn't it be great to get together and do something, those of you who want to? So we're going to run a mini conference in July. Yeah! It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday, and um, it's going to be local. And, um, and what we're going to do, we, we want to just give prolonged time to praising and worshipping the Lord, prolonged time to hearing teaching on the fullness of life in the Holy Spirit and really get into a, taking steps as a church, growing in that more and more. How many of you were at the um, final January prayer meeting at St. Luke's on the 31st of January? We had a great time, right? It was just one of those times where suddenly, you th- you, you, spiritually speaking, you just feel like, I think the water's rising here. This just feels, wow, we're, we're really getting somewhere here. 
And there's, there's something about pressing into God very proactively to enjoy more and more of his manifest presence that we really want to take seriously. And um, if you look around the world, at most cities in the world, you'll find that they've been built around rivers. And in the Bible, the, 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 uh, the language of river is used frequently for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus builds his church around the life of the Spirit. That's how he builds his church. And for those of us that are absolutely committed to the local church and co-laboring with him, it's essential that we drink deeper and deeper of his spirit. And so we're going to spend just a Friday night and a Saturday. I've invited Sujith to come down again. Sujith, he's happy to come and do some speaking. He's got an incredible experience of God in the Holy Spirit, incredible stories. He's going to come and encourage us. And that's the 28th and 29th of July. Yep. 28th to 30th. I guess Sunday will be like an overspill, you know, but it, that's the weekend. Okay, so if you'd like to be involved in that, please do mark it out in your diary and um, we'll, we'll get bookings open soon. Um, but, we, you know, we, it's for Rev. It's a local church conference. But sometimes when you gather like that for kind of an intense period, you can make ground in certain areas that, that often take you months or even years to make. And so we're trusting that God will just meet with us powerfully and take us forward as a church in this area. Amen. So. Please keep those dates free. It's going to be really great. I'm excited about that. Uh, before I open the Bible and start to preach, um, it's if you are new among us and you're thinking, how does this church work? What's going on? How can I get involved? Out in the foyer, there's a table which we call the Like to Know More table. Speaks for itself. If you'd like to know more, who's manning that table today? Can you stand? Adam and Nicola. Adam and Nicola. If you could get a little bit taller, just so you can see. That's great. These people here, they're good people, friendly people, well-informed people. And they will help you with any information you need to know. And also now, before I preach, I think our young people are out today. So if you are here with the youth, have a great time. Bye, youth. Right. Okay. So we are, we're doing a little mini-series on the essential attributes of God. What is God like according to the Bible? How has he revealed himself in scripture? The essential eternal attributes. Last week it was God is holy. And Richard unpacked that and that's all recorded and you can find that on the website if you would like to hear that if you missed it last week. This week we are doing God is just. God is just but it's got a subtitle and the subtitle is this. Because the world is a very unjust place, God is also angry. Okay, so God is eternally just, but because the age that we live in, in terms of how we live in the world, how the world is and how the world has always been since sin came into the world, since disobedience to God came into the world, the world is a very unjust place. As a result of that, God is angry because God hates injustice because he's just. So this is quite a countercultural sermon. Um, I might say things today that other, you've heard other people say aren't true. So I'm going to just try and stick really close to the Bible. And we've prayed that the Holy Spirit would help me. And we've prayed that the Holy Spirit would help you to hear what he is saying. And we trust that God will lead us through. Amen? Amen. Okay. So we can all, when we talk about the injustice in the world, we can all quote the stats, whether it's about financial inequality or whether it's about uh, displaced people or whether it's about oppressive governments, we can all quote the stats, roll our eyes, add our tut-tut to the conversation. But it will take a lot more than that to prove our innocence in the situation. We can all point here and point there, these huge macro things going on in the world that are horrific. 
And we can spend, as many people are currently doing in our age of political turbulence, many hours discussing them. But it will, do, it will take a lot more than that to prove our own personal innocence in the matters of injustice in the world. Because all, all of the injustices that we see, whether they are on a small scale, one-to-one, things that no one sees behind closed doors, whether that's abuse, whether that's neglect whether that's someone taking advantage of somebody else secretly, whether that's oppressive managers in the workplace, these micro things, all of these injustices to the really, really big things are actually mere tributaries of a huge river of injustice that can be summed up in these words from the book of Romans. This is the injustice of injustices. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says this. All the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible teaches that this is the source of every other injustice. Now follow me here. You're going to have to have your thinking caps on today. It's not, it's not highbrow, but you've got to do a little bit of thinking if you're going to follow me here, because this, this is important and it's worth thinking about. I was told by a wise man a few years ago, never to underestimate people's intelligence, but never to overestimate people's knowledge. So I'll try as as we go through to make my terms clear so you know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to underestimate your intelligence. I know that you'll be able to follow me through. I'm not a scholar, okay? So I'm I'm, I'm pretty normal, so we'll be fine. (laughs) What the Bible teaches is this, that there's a cross-party, international, multilingual, intergenerational, willful and deliberate suppression of the truth that God reigns. And it results in an enthusiastic, complex, ingenious, multifaceted, multi-layered, multi-faith web of activity across the globe that aims to keep him, the true God and creator of all, at bay. And he is furious about it. He is utterly furious about it. And I'm going to unpack that to you today. And I trust that God in his mercy will open our eyes to see. The question is this. Does he have any right to be angry about this? Or is his anger just? Is his anger in that sense to be trusted? Is his anger good? You see, anger is one of those things, right? (laughs) You kind of... Hate it and fear it on one level and on another level, sometimes you cry out for it. Won't someone get angry about this and say something? Anger is a very powerful thing and it's very easily corrupted and very easily causes death and causes destruction and, and really messes up people's lives, whether physically through violence or internally through words spoken out of unrighteous anger that destroy the souls and spirits of people. 
It's a very, very powerful thing. And yet there is this thing called righteous anger. There is sometimes a time for anger to be expressed in the right way and at the right time that destroys destructive things that life might flourish. And so we've got to ask ourselves, is this anger that God carries in this way, is it just? Is it righteous? Will it bring life? So here's the deal. Here's the picture biblically. God makes all things and sustains all things. So it's not just that he makes all things and then removes himself like a clockmaker and lets the thing just tick and happen. The Bible says that all things hold together in him. So his, the way he's created things is that he's got it all going, but that he actually sustains all things. So we get phrases in the Bible like, in him we live and move and have our being. You, it's not like he's just out there. He's omnipresent. He fills all things, the Bible says. And so the whole of creation pulsates with his life. And so the, the breath that I breathe is the breath of life, which is a gift from him. And, so, and, and, and which obviously aids my consciousness. And therefore the thoughts that I have and the, and the things I'm able to articulate and put together are all part of his grace. And the various gifts and talents that we all have have been knitted into us by his grace and by his mercy. So he doesn't just make all things, but he sustains all things. And then, in, which is an extraordinary thing, but then, this is even more extraordinary, the pinnacle of his creation, those who have been made in his image, image bearers and stewards of his creation, you and me, human beings, we choose two things, the Bible says. The first thing we choose is to reject him, and the second thing we choose is to celebrate his creation. And so we reject him, but what we do is we, but, but we love, we enjoy all that he has made. And so we, talk, we make programs and talk about, isn't wildlife amazing? And we all go, yes, and we applaud and clap, but we don't quite know who we're applauding and clapping, but we think it's amazing. And so we delight and we say, yes, we want to explore the planet and the planets. We want to find out what's out there. And we, 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 we indulge ourselves in these incredible things that he has done. And we give ourselves to things, all of which are summed up in his creation, and we delight in it and we sing songs about it and we love things like love and we sing song after song year after year century after century millennia after millennia about love we're still going strong on love songs aren't we it's we just we can't get enough of it and yet all all sung most of them sung in, in a sense that gives no no credibility no acknowledgement to the source of love and the source of life And so I'm just trying to paint you the picture of how the Bible paints this terrible injustice that is God. It's a shocking, shocking thing. I mean, you know when you do something, and you may not be proud of it, but you just, for someone to just look at you and say, that's a great painting. Oh, that's a lovely song. That's not inappropriate, is it, to want someone to say that? It's natural. It can become weird, but generally it's natural. You know, if you do something, you want to share it so someone can enjoy it, but part of it's they're going to look at you and go, Wow. You did that. And you go, oh, it's nothing. (laughs) You know how it goes. Oh, no, no, it's really nothing. They like it. It's natural to do that. It's natural to do that. It's not wrong. It's not fallen. That's not corrupt. It's normal. It's normal. And yet here's this extraordinary, extraordinary, eternal being that that has spoken this I can't even think of a word, magnificent creation into life and upholds it all by his grace and glory. And we love it and we adore it. And, and yet it, we, 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 there's this, there's this organised kind of system whereby we, we don't just say, wow, great job. 
And we just look out into the ether and say, great, great job. And we say, well, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Often people say, I'm so thankful. I'm thinking, yeah, but who to? Who to? That doesn't make sense. There's something going on here. Is this not deeply unjust? Is this not painfully unjust? And so how does God respond to this? Well, here's what he does. He chooses a people. Millennia ago, he chooses a people from a man, Abraham. chooses a nation, Israel, a nation that came from Abraham's loins. And he says to them, I've set you as a light to the nations and I want to, I want to pour my covenant love on you and enrich your life abundantly so that the other nations can look on and say, wow, look at, look at the way you live. What God do you worship? And they'll say, we worship the Lord, the creator of heavens and earth. And they'll say, wow, we want to we put aside gods that we've created. We want to know the true and living God and the whole of creation will be restored. And what do Israel do? Well, in a nutshell, they commit spiritual adultery time and time and time again, turning away from him to the end where God says, you have broken me. In Ezekiel, you have broken me. You were my beloved. I found you in a state and I, I took you and I nurtured you and I lavished my love on you and I dignified you and I made you my people, the apple of my eye, my special possession. And you turned on me again and again and again, worshipping other gods, gods of your own making. That's what, that's what happened to God when he did that. And so then what does he do? Well, after he does that, he gives his only son. The word becomes flesh, the eternal living word of God, the son, the eternally begotten son of God takes on flesh, takes on humanity, comes into our skin and lives on this planet in our skin. And what do they do? They crucify him. We crucify him. He's rejected. He's vilified. He's accused. He's crucified. He's accused of blasphemy. But he's the word become flesh. He's the eternally begotten son of God. He is divine. He's the second person of the Trinity. He has always been and always will be. And he gets killed for blasphemy. Crucified. That's what we do. Is it not extraordinary that he hasn't totally destroyed us? (laughs) The Bible says that he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And he causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He, there's this thing called common grace. Even, though, even those who live and, and insult him and take his name in vain hour after hour and make jokes about him and, 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 and pay people online to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and write books against him. He sends his sun on them and he sends his rain on them and he blesses them with gifts and talents so they can articulate wonderfully formulated arguments against his existence. He said, what grace. What mercy. It's extraordinary. It's utterly extraordinary. And even many of those who want to do well and want life to go well, what they have to end up doing is create pseudo-biblical storylines to support what they're doing. So people start talking about those who are health experts speak about, we must look after your body because it's a temple. Your body's a temple. You must look after it. And it's the, the cause is a good cause. It's about looking after yourself. But it's like we've got we've to somehow give this the right meaning. That your body is a temple. Well, where's that taken from? Well, we don't worry about the God element, but your body's a temple. So make sure that you eat this and drink this and do this exercise. And he's on the sidelines. And the environmentalists speak of creation as an entrustment for our and the future generations. But no reference to the creator. And charity aid workers speak of compassion, showing compassion. Wonderful, wonderful. But what about the source of compassion? 
And peacemakers speak of peace for future generations and reconciliation. And we're thinking, oh my, he's the God of reconciliation. He's the God who's been reaching out for millennia for his people to come back to him. And so these, these good acts, these good deeds, they're exalted and they're given pseudo-biblical status because there's, there's, there's a higher meaning to what's going on and people know it intuitively. But, but to, if you then begin making it explicit that there's a higher meaning going on to what we're doing, then you have to end up doing something. You have to end up reckoning them with what's that higher meaning about? Where does this transcendence come from? And yet you'll know it's there. I know you live in this strange juxtaposition of longing and yearning for meaning and yet not, not wanting to face the source of meaning, the author of life. And so you at the same time embrace this kind of storyline of futility that there is no meaning and that there is no purpose and that it's going nowhere. And you, this is how people are living. But he is sidelined. He is marginalized. Now, sometimes he's allowed in, but he's not allowed in under his own identity. So I'm reading, we're flicking through a book um, in W.H. Smith the other day about successful life. And there's about 40 chapters on little things you can do. And one is have a belief system. Have a belief system. It helps. Call it what you like. It's just, it helps. The thing helps in and of itself. It's been proven psychologically. So just have one. So he's allowed in, but you, you, he's not allowed in as him. He's, well, he's allowed in as, who do you say he is? You say he's him? You say that's his name? But then he can come in under that name. But he's given himself. He has a name. He's not nameless. He has a name. He's Yahweh. He's I am who I am. You can't just say, you can't, well, you, that's fine. You want to be Allah? You can be Allah. Yes, no problem. That's fine. Because what? Because it's, what, it's what, what, what's meaningful to you. It's your belief system. Well, he's on the sidelines. He is real. If he's not real, fine. If he's not real, call him what you like. But he made all things. Whatever you name him with, you're doing it with the breath and the voice he gave you. So he comes, he, you, but he's invited in under whatever, but just don't, whatever you do, keep him on the sidelines and keep him submitted to the creation. He can come in if he behaves. He can come in if he conforms. The creation has made a leap for the throne, aligning with the usurper, Satan. And what is God's response? Psalm 2. That's the intro. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That means Christ against his Christ saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm not going to spend hours on this. But I want to just help you follow the, the logic of what happens in this psalm. If you could just go back to the start, please, Tuli. What you've got at the beginning here in these first few verses is you've got humans. From nations, people, rulers, kings. The whole gambit of humans looking to throw off the restraint that God brings. This word's here. 
about their, his, let's burst their bonds and cast away their cords. Bonds and cords are like a restraint. Like maybe if you've got a toddler and they're at the age where they can kind of start to walk, it's a dangerous age. <laughs> well, they can move now. And um, sometimes what you do, you put reins on them just so that you can kind of like, you know, you can keep them from going in the road. That's what you do. And um, the idea here that there's a restraint that is given. Why? So that they don't die. Essentially. Okay? To keep them alive and in good health. There's restraint God brings into our life. So in the Garden of Eden, God says, you can eat from whatever tree you like, but it's just one tree. Don't eat from that one tree. There's a restraint. Now, it's not that God's um, his most prominent posture is one of restraint. It's actually to be permissive. Because he said, you can go wherever you like. Run. You've got the whole lot. So it's not that God's a spoil sport or just trying to restrict things. No, 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 no. He wants to give us loads and loads of space to run. But he says, but there's just one tree, just one thing. It's a restraint. Here it is. Just don't eat from that tree because the day you do, you'll die. You think, well, why did God put it in there? Here's why. Because the tree created choice. And you can't have love without choice. If all you can do is love that person, then you love them, but you're not really loving them. If there's an option not to, and you choose to, that's love. And so the tree's there for choice. Why? Because God values love. But there is a restraint. Don't, not that one, why not? You'll die. It's for your good. But we know the story. We know what happens. They eat from the tree and spiritual death ensues from that point. Okay? The reality is this, is that the restraint God brings into our life brings life. Throwing off his restraint doesn't just bring death, it brings slavery. You throw off God's restraints, you will become enslaved to your appetites. You will become enslaved to drives within you that you suddenly realize are out of your control. He brings restraint and it brings life to us. Then here we see that, that there's, so there's a conspiracy, if you like, against the Lord and his anointing. We don't want them ruling over us. You don't want the Father and the Son ruling over us. And then verses 4 to 5, God's response is this. He sits in the heavens laughs. Like it's a laugh of derision. It's a laugh of mockery. And the Lord holds them in derision. Now, the idea here with these, these words originally, it's, it's a little bit like, <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, if you hear someone speak a foreign language, but you're not used to it, so it sounds funny to you and you do an impression of it. So I've often wondered, what do we sound like? What do we sound like to, to other nations? And I think we sound like this. Dub, 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 dub. Now, the reason why I think that is because I was on holiday for a long time in another nation for a while. I didn't hear English language for, for a long time. I came back and I heard it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is what we sound like. So if it's French, no offence, we go, oh, he, oh, he, oh. if I did that, everyone knows I'm speaking about French people. Am I right? It's how, it, it's how it sounds to us. Not being mean, not being racist. We sound weird too. But we just, I'm just being real, okay? That's the sound. Da, 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 da. Okay? Italy. Yeah, we all know, okay? There's certain sounds. Because it sound, this is what God, they're saying. To be, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. God says, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, what a lot of nonsense. What are you talking about? Just holds them in utter derision, laughs, mocks. Why? Why does he mock and laugh? Because they've got no sovereignty to do that. They've got, you can't, you can't outreach God. No matter how rebellious you are, the whole time you're operating under his sovereignty. So it's laughable. It's ridiculous. You write your books on atheism, fine. Write them on atheism. You are writing them with the gifts and talents he gave you. You just got to know that. You might say, I don't believe in God. His existence is not dependent on your belief. He's sovereign. He's self-sufficient. He exists in and of himself. You don't. You had a start, you'll have an end. He is self-sufficient. 
He does not need you to affirm his existence. He holds, he holds us in derision, mocks it in heaven. It's ridiculous. Then the next stage, verse 6. No, sorry, verse 5. Then he speaks to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. We'll look at that later, but it's not just derision. He's absolutely indignant that his creation might speak in this way. Utterly indignant. How dare you? There comes a point as a parent sometimes where your kids speak to you in a certain way and you go, I'm going to now count to ten in my head so that it comes out right. And then once I've counted to ten, I will look at them and say, how dare you? (laughs) Yeah? How dare you? I am not one of your mates from the playground. You think it through. Absolutely. Shocked. God is like, how dare you? Who do you think you are? And he counts to a lot longer than 10. But he's counting. He's counting. And you might see it and say, well, the world goes on as it always has. The Bible says that's because of his patience. That's because of his patience. He wants no one to perish. Then he says, as for me, I've set my king in my Zion, my holy hill. That's it. End of story. The king, Jesus is the king of the universe. It's done. Do what you like. Jesus is king. <laughs> He's the king. He's the absolute king. I believe in the government of Jesus. I am not feeling insecure by political turbulence because I believe in the government of Jesus. I believe that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I will pray for our leaders. I will support them and submit to them as long as I can with a clear conscience before God. I will not be unsettled by what goes on in, a, in, a, in an ultimate sense. Why? Because everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that, only, so that that which is eternal remains. And that is the kingdom and government of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's not just as real and concrete as the governance we've got around us. It is more real and concrete. And his kingdom is coming. And he will be established. And he will rule on the earth. And it will be wonderful. Verse 7. So now, now what's happening is, is that it's almost like the son is speaking. The anointed one, the king. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord, my father, said to me, you're my son. Today I've forgotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Okay? It's not a local government of Jesus. It's a global government of Jesus. Every nation has been promised to him by the father. You'll break them with a rod of iron. If they rebel against you, you will break them with a rod of iron. Okay? Gentle, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, sometimes. Don't caricature him. Don't make him into what you want him to be. You dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Can we go to the next slide, please, Toby? Now, therefore, kings, be wise. (laughs) Be warned. Be warned, rulers of nations. Be warned. You will be held to account. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. You think, how do these words come together? Rejoicing and trembling. What's going on here? It's, the, it's when you begin to see him in his glory and his wonder. And you say, this, is, this God I see now is big enough to have the whole of me. He's, 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 this isn't a God that I can just use for my whims. Oh God, I need a bit of help. I'm in trouble. Come and help me out. Oh God, rescue us from that. If that's the only time you pray to him, God help you. He is big enough to have all of you. 
And, he, and if, if you allow him to be God in your life, you will find yourself rejoicing. Like you heard this morning, his testimonies, his wonderful testimonies, just delight in him. But there's this trembling. It's like, he is God and he lives in me. He is God and he is in my life. Wow. Kiss him. It's intimate. Kiss the son. Pay homage. Pay homage to him. Kiss him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Now the Bible says this, well, he's slow to anger. So what does that mean? It means he's very, 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 very patient. But there comes a point where it's like, right, sit now. Enough. When it's time, it's kindled. Right, sit now. And we're going to read about that at the last part of our sermon. All the nations have been promised him. Jesus is going to return. And it says this will be the response of some. We're going to spend a bit of time in Revelation. I know it's a bit longer than usual, but just how do you do this subject in five minutes, which is how long I normally am? <laughs> Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There's something about his return where people will go, oh no. Some people will go, oh no. This is everything I banked against. <laughs> this is everything I banked against. Oh no, he's real and he's coming and it's time when he's gone, that's it. That's it now. Enough. And we're told in, in, in chapter 6, which gives us another insight into the return of Christ. It says, he, Jesus opened the sixth seal. It was a great earthquake. And there's things happen in nature. And then it says, the sky vanished. 6.14. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone. Slaves and free. Seven categories to show that it's complete. Everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Call into the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the moment where God says enough now. Enough now. We're living in the day of salvation, the Bible says, which means you call on the name of the Lord now, you get saved. Okay. Talk about that at the end. You get saved. There's a day coming where it's the day of judgment. At that point, God said enough now. I'm coming back and holding everyone to account. And there will be those who call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them rather than face him and face his wrath. The Bible is clear. It says it time and time again. Romans 2 says this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. You might think, well, what is that? That's a warning. That's not manipulation. That's a warning. As a parent, you warn your kids sometimes. You say, don't go, don't go, don't do that. Why not? Because that's going to lead to that. We don't want that. That's not manipulative. That's just, that's good parenting. That's saying, don't do that. This is God saying, don't do it. Don't. Don't continue in rebellion and sin and darkness. Don't do it because there will be tribulation and distress from my throne. Okay, this is, this is, this is from him. It's who he is. It's who he is. One more. Revelation 19. 
It's an incredible description of Jesus. I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, verse 11. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. How many adjectives do you want in there? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is just. He is just. And there has been such wicked, vile injustice that's happened on this earth. And he's seen every little bit that's happened in the darkness and behind closed doors. And there will be a reckoning for every little bit, which is why as believers, we can forgive. That's why we can forgive. We know he will hold to account. We know when he brings revenge, he'll do it properly. When I do it, I'll just get bitter and I'll do it wrong and that will become sinful. So I forgive those who have sinned against me and I leave them in his hands. And I pray God that you would show them mercy and they would repent. But if they don't, Lord, then you would take revenge. And if you've never been around keen injustice, if you've never been around abuse, if you've never been around murder, rape, if you've never been around war and the horrors of and the things that go on, then you might struggle to, you might find this is a little bit strong for your taste buds. But once you taste injustice, then you will know something has to be done here. Something has to be done here. This cannot just go unchecked. And God says, it will not go unchecked. I will come and I will hold to account and render according to everyone, according to their works. He will. And he'll come and he'll do it in his name. He will come as him and do it. And he's accountable to none in it. But because he is perfect and holy and utterly righteous, it will be perfect judgment. Nothing will be missed, no blind spots. He searches to the heart, so you can't lie, you can't wriggle out. He searches to the heart. Every heart laid bare before him. It's wonderful because it's justice. But here's the thing I'm going to end on. It's actually quite scary because all of us, one way or another, have been party to this injustice. All of us have. Leapt for the throne. Ignored him. Been ashamed of him. Done our thing. All of us. None of us are guiltless. But the glory of the gospel is this. The glory of the gospel that God has made a way for us to come back to him just as we are. If we will repent, if we will about face and say, you know what, I've got it wrong. But we come just as we are. We can come to him and he can remain just. Because you think, well, how can God just let us come back to him when we've, done, when we've sinned in this way? Surely that would be unjust. That would be like a judge just saying, you know what, you're guilty, but it doesn't matter. That would be awful. A judge can't do that. A judge can't say, you're guilty, but it doesn't matter. That's a terrible judge. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what's right? Absolutely. So you say, well, how does it work then? Here's how it works. God in his glory, God in his mercy, God in his furious, jealous love for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before times eternal, agreed that the Son would give up his life for us, would bear his, our sins in his body. That he would face in his body the punishment, the wrath for our sins. Absorb it, absorb all the pain, all of the injustice, so that anyone who comes to him could be freely forgiven and made right with God. Anyone who comes to him could in a moment without 
101 rituals of doing this, that and the other could come literally as they are. If they come to the Father through the Son, if you come to God through Jesus who died on a cross for you, then you can instantly be pardoned for every wrong thing you've done and even the guilt of it and even the shame of it. And you'll be able to look to him and say, do you know what, Lord, I don't know how this happened, but I know now I am right with you. Your forgiveness has broken into my life and flooded through my soul. And I know now that I'm right with you. That is a miracle. That is extraordinary. You think, what is that? That is the burning love of God. Love and justice kiss at the cross. God says, I'm coming for you, even though you run from me. And I'll never, he never forced himself on you. There's this choice we make. We turn to him in repentance and faith. But he has literally removed everything out of the way so you can come straight into his arms. What a God he is. How glorious is his name. And once you know him, you can't anymore start, you can't say any more things like, well, you know, this is just what I believe. And, you know, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. And it's just my thing. It's just my opinion. It's my belief. You just can't because, you know, I've met God. And you've got to remain respectful and gentle and kind and non-judgmental. But at the same time, you've got to be able to be true and say, I've met God. I've been reconciled to the creator. I can't just say this is my thing. In fact, you know what? If this is just my thing, I've got no right standing up here talking. He's so arrogant. Why would you listen to my opinions for 40 minutes? Please don't. For goodness sake, don't. But if this is the God of the Bible, if this is his word, then listen. Listen, because in his mercy, he will continue to feed you through it. So this is, this, this is where we're at, folks. And I just hope that I've managed to paint a bit of a picture of the justice of God today. So you can understand that there is, there is a, absolutely a righteous anger in him. Absolutely. And it's not to, we mustn't go silent about it. We mustn't make the, the lion of Judah into the, into the cat next door. Okay? He's the lion of Judah. Don't pare his claws and file down his teeth. He's the lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, and he is the lion of Judah. It's who he is. It's who he is. And we let him be him and we let him show his glory in and through the church. And we speak of him as the lion and the lamb. We don't let fear and intimidation and political correctness get the better of us. But by his grace, and we're all faltering, we're all doing the best, you know, we, we get it wrong. But by God's grace, Lord, help us to remain true to who you truly are. Amen. Can we just stand, please? Could the musicians um, come and help us? I, I do want to give a, a specific response today to this message. We're going to sing a song in just a moment about the lion and the lamb. We learned it at the start. So what song we're going to sing. We're going to break bread as we do that. Um, if you guys are happy to just play when you're ready. I, as I was preparing this morning, I just I felt like there are some today. Today is time to really give your life to the real Jesus. <laughs> and it could be that you've never really given your life to the real Jesus. So in the sense you've been around church, you know, you've been at stuff, but you've never, never bowed the knee. You've never let him be Lord. You haven't. You might have, you might have gone to conferences, read Christian books, but you've never actually really bowed the knee. You're afraid to. I tell you what, the Bible says that Psalm 2, what did it say? Those who find refuge in him are blessed. Okay. You think, well, why, why the blessing? Because all of the blessing of God is in Jesus. So if you come to God through Jesus, you are in the blessing of God. Every spiritual blessing. Or maybe you've never given yourself to the real Jesus. You've given yourself to 
maybe Jesus is that you've heard about, but he's not, the, he's not the lion and the lamb. And you know, today I need to give myself to him. Maybe this is the first time at church for you. Maybe you're seasoned in the church, but whatever your story, your journey, I just felt for some today, it, there's a moment of mercy. The Bible says that all those who call on his name will be saved, right? If you're not calling my name, call on his name. I can't lead you to Jesus. He leads you to him. Right? It's what he does. But if you call on his name, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth, he is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So even if, as I've spoken, or maybe during the songs behind, or even right now, you just know, do you know what? I, I believe, I'm believing. You think, what's happened there? The Holy Spirit has touched you. The Holy Spirit has done it. You believe in your heart. He's alive. I can see it. I get it. What's left now? What's left now to do is to confess he is Lord. There's something about the speech that brings something to its kind of consummation. And what you're doing is essentially you're saying, Jesus, you're not just the Lord, you're my Lord. And I bow the knee. And I put my trust in you. And I believe you paid my debt at the cross. And I'm going to get baptised because I want to be buried into my old life and raised into newness of life. And I ask you to do a very brave thing. Yeah, I don't want you to come forward. I don't want to look at you. But here's the thing. There's something about publicly confessing Jesus as Lord. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before angels in heaven when I return. I'll confess you. There's something about owning Jesus. And it's not to try and embarrass you or so we feel good. It's to try and get you off to the best possible start where you know, do you know what? I've nailed it today. I've left here today knowing I've nailed it. I've become a disciple. I'm in. I'm all in. So as the musicians play, if you just know that this is you, now's your time. I'm just asking that where you are, you would just cry out, Jesus, you are Lord. It's as simple as that. Jesus, you are Lord. You're just saying, yes. Okay, loudly, publicly. And the Bible says, as you call on his name, as we then sing the songs and you call on his name, he will rescue you. You will know. I'm, I, I'm walking out of here a different person to how I walked in. It's a miracle. So we're going to just have a moment. And, you know, I don't know where this is going to go, but just trust in the Lord that he whispered this into my soul this morning as I was preparing this sermon. So if this is you, you know now's your time. As the musicians play, you just call out nice and loud, Jesus, your Lord.